Hey, Jordan, how's it going? Hey, what's up? <sighs> I'm just oh. I'm just reading some tweets. Um, okay. The dude bros are are back at it this week. <sighs> of course. Yep. Uh, you know this this week was a big victory for all of us, right? Uh, you've mm-hmm. got the Democratic Party passing this massive stimulus bill. I want to be happy about it. I want to celebrate. But it was really alarming, I think, um, seeing a number of the online Twitterati, um, as you might call them, being, frankly, very sexist towards Senator Kristen Cinema <laughs> for the mere crime of, of dabbing when she when she voted against the minimum wage increase uh, including that in the in the coronavirus package really disappointing stuff you want to think we've moved on from that kind of stuff and that uh, that America's become a more enlightened society especially after the 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 Trump era of sort of that kind of open sexism and misogyny you want to believe America's turned the page on that and then something like that happens and you just realize there's so much more work to be done it was it just felt like a huge setback I saw so many biphobic tweets. Yeah. People saying very problematic. Yeah, people were saying um how could you do this? How could you vote against raising the minimum wage? And you know, they're saying that. I mean, it's very clear by the text of that tweet. It's because she's a woman and she's bisexual. Yeah. That's it. Plain and simple. How what else could you read from a message that says support raising the minimum wage or raise the minimum wage like i think inherently it is sexist to do that yeah this kind of quote unquote like oh i can't afford to live yeah on the current right, minimum wage kind of thing yeah mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a convenient excuse mm-hmm. to trot out some really lazy uh, uh tropes about uh about girl bosses like Kristen cinema mm-hmm. uh, very frustrating disgusting. yeah and i mean like what so she's just supposed to forget about like the deficit right Again, it's like, oh, she's just supposed to forget that, you know, you're going to go to Taco Bell and it's going to cost you $20, $30 to get a meal. Like maybe mm-hmm. she's thinking, maybe she's thinking a few moves ahead. It's called and, having a conscience. Yeah. And if some of these folks, if they weren't so obsessed with, you know, being, being, uh, hating women, uh, mm-hmm. they'd be able to see this kind of political maneuvering for what it is. But again, it's just people think that, oh, it's, you know, I have an excuse to just like bully and do targeted harassment to United States senators. And they have this kind of pretense of like, you know, being it wanting to, you know, afford to have an apartment and, and pay bills and, and feed their families and such. I mean, if you really think about it, you know who the, who the real villain is in, in this whole ordeal? Who? It's, it's, it's Mark Kelly, the other senator mm. from Arizona who voted to raise the wage, hanging her out to dry. So yeah. if anybody is the villain here, it's Mark Kelly. Yeah, or or the number of people like in Arizona who do indeed support raising the minimum wage of America. I mean, it's kind of sexist to, to when pollsters call you and, and ask you about that kind of stuff, to say that. And to put your senator in a weird position where then she has to vote against it and have people be mean to her. I mean, again, just, I don't know, I wonder what these people's priorities are. It's just really really disturbing stuff.
man, that was really quite a... <laughs> like, when I saw that, that gif of cinema voting, I almost, like, didn't believe... Like, I was surely that's, like, something else that, you know, they're using as this... Yep. To justify... It's like, no, no, she actually did that when she was voting to... Voting against raising the minimum wage of the United States—that's really uh, something she did. That's really pretty, pretty incredible. Uh, yeah, I, I just kind of just stared at it in awe for a few minutes. I, I couldn't believe it. I had the same reaction. Like, There's no way she did that during this. And I went to like find more, and it was like, oh, that's what she did. And then, like, I, I was already like on eleven. Like, could did you really need to be so? trite like this is this is very serious like this there it's already 15 is already a compromise because with inflation it should be around 22 23 so it's already really fucking hard for people making minimum wage or an hourly wage that's under 15 dollars an hour and then later on that day i saw that clip that ryan Grimm shared of her going to Mitch McConnell right before, tapping him on the shoulder two different times to try to get him to turn around to watch her do that. Yeah. And I just thought, like, you were such a fucking piece of shit. Like, I, I can't even say what I hope happens as a result. Like, that is, go fuck yourself. Like, you are, you are an enemy. You are my enemy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just very bizarre, too, how, how her and a number of the other senators that voted against this then put out statements being like of course i support raising the minimum wage but but you know i just support doing it another time you know when we think it can pass doing but it it's like right well whatever yeah if you vote no then it's definitely not going to pass but if you if you vote yes then it could actually pass that's the kind of interesting thing and i think that was the whole point right correct me if i'm wrong but that was the whole point of including that in the reconciliation uh, process, which is that they could have passed that uh, with the 50 votes that they used to to uh, pass this legislation. Whereas now that they're saying, "Oh, now we're going to do that separately," but now that they've they've uh, sixty, yeah, now you're going to need sixty. So now there's just like no fucking way that it's going to that it's going to yep. happen. Um, so yep. it's just very bizarre. This statement. It's a very Democratic Party, very liberal thing to be like. Yeah, of course I support raising the minimum wage. Uh, I just voted against it for these other kind of uh, labyrinthine reasons. But yeah, of course I support that. And it's like, well, I don't know if I believe you. I don't know if I believe you, Kristen. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't really know what to say. I mean, I've got family members who make uh, hourly wage, maybe not minimum, but like ten, and even in the areas that are quote, affordable to live, still struggle. And the outlook is bleak for people working those jobs. And they just guaranteed that it's going to be that way for the foreseeable future. I hope it was worth it. And I really hope there is a special place in hell for people who did that. Yeah. And, and another thing I wanted to point out too, is that because you can make the case with someone like Cinema who lives in this red state, um, you can make that kind of blue dog case that like, oh, she had to be opposed to it because she lives in this conservative uh, state. Uh, so she <laughs> it has even to work there. Even, no, it, it doesn't even, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't even work because most conservatives, uh, I believe support raising the minimum wage. But then you have a situation like, um, I believe Coons, right? Who's like Biden's yeah. guy in the Senate from Delaware. Both of the senators in Delaware have like 20, like they won a re-election by 20 points. There's no political danger for them to go to support this. And they still 
didn't did not support including it. So you have to like wonder at that point whether like this is like a either a directive from the White House or you get the I got the impression anyway from what people were saying that if Biden wanted to include that he would have those guys would have done what Biden wanted them to. And so by the, both of those guys voting no is a kind of illustrative about what their priorities are in the oh. White House. It's corporate. It's also corporate power. I mean, you you know, the the the, the corporate entities in total in Delaware, I think, outrank like every other state. Um, if it's not the most, it's like top three, just because there's no corporate taxes. So they all have a fucking P.O. box in a build, a tiny building in Delaware. Yeah. That's why they just represent <laughs> like every fucking corporation. Um, so uh that's it that they are just that is emblematic of the corporate power control in in the country but on the arizona thing like the other senator is a democrat so like people were saying oh well you know it's hard for her and hard for mansion no a democrat (laughs) senator in arizona voted yes there's no excuse i mean mark kelly is like a you know pretty likable guy people like astronauts and you know he's got a, a sympathetic heartwarming story but like like you're saying there's no political risk attached to raising wage for the working class. You're going to upset business owners. So it just shows who you prioritize. That's it. Yeah. Um, by the way, it's the Insurgents episode 61. Um, Rob Rousseau here along with Jordan. You will. Hey. Hey. Rob. Hey, how's it going? Um, <laughs> I did want to mention too, while we're, while we're talking about the minimum wage uh, before we move on, that there is also like a Canadian angle here too, which I try to draw on occasion. But I think this is the kind of thing that if you're in the United States and you just think of Canada as this kind of separate country with our own sort of uh, traditions and institutions, you probably underestimate the extent to which political leaders in Canada use the incredibly low bar of the United States as a way to like keep our own insufficient status quo the way it is uh the minimum wage here in canada is like 11 something which I, in american dollars is like eight bucks an hour so it's rough it's quite similar and this was another thing where if america had committed to raising the minimum wage uh, i think you would have seen a conversation in canada begin uh about doing the same thing because i think a 15 dollars minimum wage would be something like 18 or 19 dollars uh here in canada because this this is another thing that uh the yankees were once again uh uh angry at me and, and other Canadians for, for weighing in on this. This is the one thing that, that irony poison leftists and K-Hive members and MAGA people can all agree on, that, that Rob should not should not weigh in on any of this stuff. Um, but it, that's the thing. It's not just a matter of, of just kind of commenting on what's going on in America, but this was really something that would have huge ramifications here as well. Uh, so that's one of the reasons that it was frustrating that it didn't get included. And that it, it probably is now just punted for who knows how long now, because as we pointed out, it's it's probably not going to be passing anytime soon um, in the Senate when they're not doing this reconciliation thing. Yeah. Um, but so they did pass this big uh, relief package. How are you feeling about it? Like, um, because like we pointed out the things that 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 uh, are they really fucked up about it, like not including this minimum wage for no real reason. It seems like, but. Do you feel any sort of sense of positivity or, or uh, hopefulness about, about what they just did, or uh, what's what's your what's your stance on this? No, <laughs> um, not really. I mean, cool. Yeah, it's it is. I mean, they negotiated with themselves to cut back the amount of additional unemployment insurance benefits, and for a shorter amount of time. 
So they <laughs> they made it. Well, they did get a bunch of Republican votes uh, for that. So that's you know, right. You gotta, you gotta make those nego- the horse trading, <laughs> the negotiating. That's what it's all about. That's the thing. You know? It's like you it do. just shows like just the, basically go big and then make mansion uh, the the single out mansion. If he's gonna do it, go like make, make hang it on him. Don't capitulate under this false premise that republicans are going to be on board if you make it more targeted or whatever like democrats however you feel for better or worse supported and voted for trump's coronavirus relief plans like the first one and then the one in december and they showed support and now republicans are throwing up their hands like well i i can't believe you didn't want to work with us Whose fucking problem is that? Like, yeah. do, do it. Just fucking do it. Like, you're, like <laughs> the fact that you don't have a, enough cuts in it uh, isn't really a sufficient justification. So, uh, I, I don't know. Overall, don't I don't feel great that despite passing it by themselves, they still cut those benefits. Um, and ultimately, it feels really fucking shitty that a bunch of Democrats voted against raising the minimum wage because that was one of the first things they pointed to when they initially uh talked about not having as big of checks and reoccurring or retroactive it was look that's fine we won't get that but we're gonna raise the minimum wage so that was the compromise and now that's out and then they compromised again and made the benefits uh (laughs) like more restrictive so it's just like a lose, lose, lose down the line. It's really fucking shitty. Yeah. That was also the justification when that whole force the vote argument was going on. That was kind of what AOC was saying, right? Why we don't want to pick mm-hmm. this fight now, because then we're going to have leverage that we things we can do, like passing this $15 minimum wage. And I'm sure she's super <laughs> thrilled that now she looks like kind of uh, naive for the fact that she believed that that was uh, going to be something that was going to be a priority with the with the party. Um, I do have, okay, but believe it or not, I do have a slightly more optimistic, uh, take on this, or I'm trying to Mm -hmm. anyways. And I think it goes back to what, what have you been saying about, you know, the Biden administration is that we, we, it's, it's imperative that they don't repeat the same mistakes of the Obama era. And a lot of, like a lot of what we saw during that area was, was exactly what we were just mentioning, the kind of negotiating with themselves, um, and watering down their own policy in this misguided quest to uh, win Republican votes, which were never coming, and then kind of sabotaging themselves politically uh, to get wiped out uh, in the in the subsequent elections. Um, and that's kind of what we've been kind of saying is the the th- threat with the Biden administration that they could be going down that same path. So I think one thing that you can point to that's like a, a good thing, which is that when you when you look at o- Obama. Um, becoming president in in 09 and the sort of massive crisis that he was inheriting at that time and the fact that his big uh, stimulus package got basically slashed in half right away because it, it, I think the economists had suggested it should, it should be somewhere around $1.5 trillion. And like Larry Sumners was just like, no, 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 it's too much. Uh, it's too expensive and people are going to be mad. So just slash that right in half. And then that led to this like anemic recovery and all the, all the, you know, political fallout that we just talked about. Um, so I think it's good on one level that they did not follow that kind of policy. And this was in many ways still a pretty ambitious package it's uh you know it's they they didn't really listen to the sort of deficit hawk argument and it probably it 
regardless of the, the changes they made to it and the fact that they didn't include this minimum wage, it will, you know, help a lot of people. Um, and I guess that is the perplexing thing about why they chose to negotiate with themselves for it, because it just seems completely pointless. Um, you know, if they if they clearly kind of understood that that was a mistake, I don't understand the point of, like, just arbitrarily whittling down the number of people that are going to be in, are, are receiving uh, funds it, with no real gain, uh, especially when it comes to, like, the unemployment benefits. You know, if you're counting on receiving $400 a week in unemployment, and that's just arbitrarily slashed to 300 I mean, if you're living on, on 1600 bucks a month, that's a huge fucking difference to just, like, to lose that arbitrarily for no real reason. So I don't really understand. It's, it seems very stupid to me that the fact that they did that, but I guess I'm slightly encouraged at the fact that they didn't negotiate with themselves to the same extent as, as what happened um, in the Obama era, and... I guess that's the kind of thing with the, when it comes to like the midterms of 2022. I think a number of people, and they're justified in being paranoid about this, are just assuming that the fact that they pulled these things, that they removed the minimum wage, um, that they, they squeezed thousands and thousands of people out of this uh, recovery, uh, I think people are, are justifiably worried that that's going to lead to that getting wiped out in the midterms and history shows us that probably is what's going to happen but i i don't know if i'm ready to to just write that off yet as much as they did we negotiate with themselves and whittle this down it is still a pretty ambitious package that is going to help people they will be able to point to the fact that like no republicans helped whatsoever you know in after this crisis you have the democratic party giving out this big uh stimulus and with no republican help at all so I, I don't quite feel to the same extent that they've completely doomed themselves. It does seem to me that they have learned some lessons of the Obama era. Um, I guess that's just why it was completely perplexing, the fact that they did whittle this down just to make just to win no votes and just to kind of make Joe Manchin feel like he was doing something to make it more bipartisan. It just seemed like completely just shooting themselves in the foot for no reason at all. But I guess that's my that's my optimistic take is that they didn't quite shoot themselves in the foot to the same extent as previous democratic administrations. So I guess that's something that, that people can hold on to. Well, we will see. I don't know. The American yeah. electorate is really fucking stupid. So like they'll this probably just like yeah. do a writing campaign to make Matt Gates president in 2024 or something like I, <laughs> Well, and also I mean, going to the minimum wage thing, someone that's earning minimum wage, I mean, what is someone's going to come to you in, in 2022 and tell you why you need to vote blue. And it's like, well, you know, what possible fucking reason would anyone have to uh, yeah. to go along with that? You know, and it's people, not that they're going to like people aren't exactly going to forget right immediately. And this is what this is where liberals are like really short sighted. Like they're like, well, okay, well Republicans aren't going to help you. Well, they're not going to switch and vote for a Republican either. They're just not going to vote, and then you yeah. lose on on reduced turnout. That's the consequence, and that's what liberals don't want to ever talk about. It's people who have been suffering for years and problems that existed before Trump continue to affect them, and they don't do anything about it, and then they wonder why they don't show up to vote. They wonder why tens of millions of people are just completely apathetic and have given up and have lost hope. That despair that infects so many in this country doesn't lead to them voting Republican, typically. It leads to them just not participating. And you expect, oh, well, they're going to see because the Republicans didn't vote for it at all that they're somehow going to see you guys are the better party. No, people think that both parties are the same and the system doesn't work, so they don't participate. That's the outcome. You could have changed it here. You could have given them an example going into midterms, but you didn't. Yeah. 
like that's what I mean. It's like it's a pretty ambitious package, but I think Kyle Kalinsky pointed this out. Like all you really had to do is just send out two thousand dollar checks, raise the minimum wage to fifteen bucks an hour, and like you could have like coasted on that. Uh, yeah. And just like arbitrarily not doing that and watering it down for no real benefit. I don't really fucking understand it. Um, it's it's very strange. And one thing that I found interesting about following this stuff this week, too, is how it was kind of like a uh, a version of the Earth 2 Bernie Sanders presidency that we're not seeing. And that's the kind of really big difference, because we've always known that conservative Democrats would have not just they wouldn't have just passed Bernie Sanders agenda like we all, that was always like obvious. But that's the kind of interesting thing. What would have happened if Joe Manchin had said no to these things? That's what Bernie always said that he was going to do was he would be putting pressure on those people to force them to go along with it. And that's what Joe Biden did not do this week. Uh, it doesn't seem like Manchin really received any pressure whatsoever from the White House to go along with this thing. Uh, and he was mm-hmm. just basically given free reign to just tank the whole tank these these central pl- campaign promises that they were making. They did um, it a couple weeks ago. That's the thing. Yeah. Like Harris went to West Virginia and Arizona a couple of weeks ago and used the bully pulpit and it got a reaction from Manchin. He was obviously upset. So you knew it was effective. And then they just stopped. Yeah. <laughs> like, why, why do you do that? Yeah. It's so, so stupid. Yeah. It was very strange. You just kind of hope that the fallout is not going to be quite as severe as it was in the midterms in, in 2010. Which were yeah. you know the kind of like the beginning of of, of all those gains that Obama had made just getting completely wiped out, uh, leading obviously to the <laughs> Republican Party taking over all branches of the United States government. Maybe that won't happen this time though. I don't know. Maybe it'll be fine. We'll see. You, you sound you sound very hopeful about this. I'm trying I'm to bring just some, worried about. I'm, I'm trying to bring Dr. some positive Seuss energy to this. There's just more important things to worry about. Doctor <laughs> Seuss has been canceled, and I I am. I've been kept up all night about it. <laughs> well, that's that's been the really bizarre thing, too, about how all this is going on. And it just seems like the conservative culture war has just, like, gotten so fucking out of hand. It's like there's this big negotiation going on. Republicans have spent that entire time talking about Lola Bunny from Space Jam, who's... who's <laughs> not as attractive now, I guess, as a, car- a cartoon character. Uh, Dr. Zeus... Uh, Mr. Potato Head and Mrs. Mm-hmm. Potato Head. These are the these are the vital issues affecting America. It's it's so fucking dumb how absurd the culture war has gotten and how everything just has to be that. But it's, uh, it doesn't seem to <coughs> show any signs of stopping anytime soon. And despite that, the the people doing this, especially this week, like Kevin McCarthy posting a video of him reading green eggs and ham and multiple people bringing it up at CPAC, despite that being their top priority, we're still fearful of losing to them. So I cannot (laughs) overstate how inept the Democratic Party uh, looks right now. Yeah, I mean, if if the Democratic Party was busy like raising the minimum wage for millions of people and delivering on all these campaign promises while Republicans were talking about like children's books, that would that would be a pretty good look for them uh but yep. they in typical democratic party uh, fashion managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory it's kind of their trademark folks we've got kelsey atherton joining the show today uh we talked a lot about biden's foreign policy and kind of the the changes in the foreign policy front that are being made we had a really great conversation with kelsey i think you're really going to enjoy that one yeah let's get to it yes let's it's very late i'm tired <laughs> i'm gonna right, go to bed go. soon it's yeah. past 10 o'clock. This is ridiculous. It's 7 p.m. Eastern right now, and he's just stomped <laughs> out. 
I just had my early bird special when I'm feeling a little. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kelsey's going to be joining the show right after this. Kelsey Atherton, writer of Wars of Future Past on Substack. You can follow that at, uh, at AthertonKD.substack.com. Kelsey, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. So we we open every show the same way with a really tough question. Uh, Here we Kelsey, go. are you are you a gamer? <laughs> I yes, um, in a genre mostly that. Um, had its like heyday from like 98 to 2003 i play too many rts and uh, total war games um just <laughs> okay. deeply deeply brain poisoned on on the zerg rush i okay, see yeah I, the, the real-time strategy uh are you talking about like, command and conquer you know or funnily enough starcraft? Like, it was almost exclusively like starcraft or yeah. um like the age of empire series empire earth is really like the sweet spot except the ai was garbage but the premise was so good um yeah so uh some games um also way too much polytopia um which is like a mobile civilization very streamlined um yes i have uh gamed nice um I'm a big Age of Empires 2 fan. I, I, I'm so happy that's in uh, Game Pass on PC because I can just run in. I can run some quick uh, total dominations in a meeting or something. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, Is that that clicking other... I hear sometimes when we're trying to do these interviews and hear this what? clicking in the background? No, that's I would me playing never. Magic. No, yeah. that's me playing Magic. <laughs> okay. um, oh, yeah. Me, well, Arena's me... been a godsend, too. Um. Yeah. What deck do you run right now? Oh, man, I am running. I haven't seen other people doing it. It probably exists, or it means I'm just not in a place where people play good decks yet. Um, but I have been running a lot of a mostly red with a little bit of white uh, dwarf deck. Um, I think oh. uh, the uh, Braga, um, that new like two-drop legend, is fantastic, and the ability to just play garbage cards. Like, I run seven dwarves in this deck. It's a mess. Um, oh. And... Then I can <laughs> you have uh, seven of them? Rely- so I run seven of them because nice. they it's what I need is a two drop that makes other two drops better and has dwarf synergies and so it's perfect. Um and it's really funny watching like high removal get used on them because they're the least important card, but if you don't then they're five fives. Um <laughs> anyway, um that's what I've been playing a lot of. Um it's it's very fun. I have no idea if it's good. I totally understand all that stuff that you just said yeah, as well. He, so. he's, he's with us as well. <laughs> I've been playing a lot of it. It's a good game. <laughs> I've been playing a lot of uh, old school Sonic the Hedgehog two, the old the classic. How classic gaming? Because my my son is getting into he, he's trying to get into gaming. Uh, he's very enthusiastic about it. He's pretty young, so I have to like limit the amount of time he has at this. So he's allowed to play like 15, 20 minutes on the weekends. And he's yeah, he's, he's into Sonic the Hedgehog. And what he really likes is going to the Chemical Zone Two, which is the second level. And just there's this part of the level where there's this a bunch of like purple like chemically water, and he just like sinking Sonic in the water, and just like he's kind of has the sadistic <laughs> thing where. He, he gets this weird perverse pleasure in, in Sonic drowning in chemicals. Random <laughs> he thinks question, that's very cool. Your, 
Does your kid like killing birds or anything else? Well? <laughs> I hope not. No, it's gotta be. You gotta do it with the right. Like you have to have that whole like cyberpunky industrial backdrop. There's something about like those early like, and it's not even the early pixely games, but that kind of pixel art style where it feels like, oh, this is a holy alien world and representation it's great um yeah i really do absolutely. love that shit as well yeah. yeah sonic spinball had some really great backdrops as well the casino one <laughs> had a really cool immersive uh, feel to it yeah yeah no it's really cool i was a, i was a genesis guy back in the day yep. in the early 90s so it brings me all the way back to my youth <laughs> <laughs> very cool <laughs> Uh, so Kelsey, you, you're joining us to talk about Biden's foreign policy. You've covered this stuff for years. Um, and despite cries from, uh, the liberal left, uh, concern about the use of drones in warfare and, and just foreign policy abroad, concerns never went away. Um, especially, uh, among the left, among you and, and other writers. So we're now seeing, uh, defense is being trotted out to justify, what many are saying is an illegal strike in in Syria by the Biden administration. This was allegedly to uh, defend ourselves, a proactive defense against future attacks from a, a group um, that uh, had yeah. allegedly attacked us uh, in Iraq. And there's a ton of moving parts. Could you help break this down for us? Sure. So the um, so the clearest understanding that I have at, at present um, is um, there was an airstrike done. The planes flew out of an airbase in Jordan. Um, the U.S. has been flying out of that airbase in Jordan since 2013. We uh, threw $140 million at it to upgrade it um, in 2019. Um, F-15Es are like they're a plane that's been flying since the 80s. Um, this is the kind that's does like the it's the the plane that does the bombing mostly if we're doing a bombing with a fighter um and the group so the u.s is still in iraq in a <clears throat> a small capacity it's mostly a train and support role um and it's a lingering part of the return of u.s forces following the whole um there was a u.s withdrawal um and then there was a return with the advent of isis and then the way the u.s had been trying to fight all this war um had been as sort of we will provide people when like spotters to help the iraqis on the ground do the fighting while we do the bombing um it's a lot there's been a lot a lot of war in the past uh you know two decades for this um it'll be yeah, the Iraq invasion turned uh, 18 this month. Um, and so this specific thing happened is there was a rocket launched on a base where U.S. forces were there and uh, contractors with the U.S. were there. Um, it killed a contractor. Um, it injured some American troops. Um, some time passed from this rocket strike. The rocket was launched by one of the uh, several um, militia groups that are operating there. And these militias have a really weird history um to an immediate american thing because what they are is they're often um something along the lines of a sort of self-defense collective they're an, they're an armed group of people they receive funding and training from iran they do all they did a lot of fighting against isis isis posed a threat to um both iraq and uh iran's ally in syria so there's a whole 
constellation of moving parts here. But it meant we had this very weird war where there's militias being uh, armed and trained by Iran who are hitting positions bombed by the U.S., but we can't acknowledge that they're fighting alongside. Um, and so anyway, there's these militias. They keep happening. They also aren't particularly thrilled that the U.S. is there. Um, they launch rocket attacks on occasion. Um, can't imagine why. Right. Uh, it's a durable feature of a slow burn insurgency. Um, and so the bombing was done, um, justified as self-defense by the Biden administration, which we'll get into in a second. But the U.S. dropped, what's it, um, how many bombs was it? It was seven bombs. They destroyed nine buildings and damaged some more. Um, and they killed one person was the initial report, um, up to 22 by some other reports. And there's some uncertainty about how many died. Um and that was the news where it stood this time last week. There's been a couple other quick things since then. One is that the Biden administration has said it's changed the rules of engagement, which we can get into. There was another one saying, oh, well, there was a second strike that was going to hit. But then it was reported that there were uh, women and children around. So the Biden administration did not drop that bomb, um, which all of this is sort of a weird pile on of the U.S. is not has not declared war on Syria. The U.S. has some pretty expansive war authorities right now, um, but these groups have not yet been linked under those authorities, right? The the go-to-war rules from 2001, say, if it's al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda affiliated, which is a whole long chain of events that's usually used to justify most of the things the U.S. bombs. Um, and that wasn't cited. It's not clear if it would apply. Um, it's probably could if the U.S. really want to stretch it, um, but who knows. Um, but it wasn't even cited. So there's not really a clear legal authority for it unless you go for self-defense, um, except rules on self-defense for militaries tend not to include the attack has passed and you hit them days later. Yeah, <laughs> in a different country. Right, well. <laughs> right, without, in a different country. Without congressional approval. Without congressional approval. And this is something... Um, really particular about this the u.s very famously like it's hard to imagine that 2020 opened this way or remember but 2020 opened with the u.s assassinating uh soleimani who is an iranian general mm -hmm. and the assassination took place in iraq um iraq's parliament asked the u.s to leave um there was it was an incredibly high tense moment it was unclear if it was going to be a shooting war with iran if it was going to be iraq was going to force the u.s out entirely um Things sort of muddled through and we're back to basically a, a very similar thing. But Iraq doesn't like being bombed, it turns out. Um, they've asked the U.S. not to do it. They've been very explicit on this fact. So if the U.S. wanted to hit an Iraqi militia, they had to hit the Iraqi militia while it was in Syria um, to not anger the country hosting them, which is a whole other layer of <laughs> what hell is going on here. Yeah. Um so could you give some background on uh, the conversations around the AUMF and the Biden administration uh, was first initially like, – people's first assumption was that they relied on the AUMF. Uh, but then they're saying they relied on uh, a clause in the constitution that gave him uh, these war powers and it was for, to protect you know, national defense and that's – that was the power that he relied on. Uh, but now that he's saying – he's signaling – whether or not it remains to be true, but he's signaling, he's like, oh, I'm going to work with Congress to, you know, repeal and I think replace the AUMF. And people, anti-war folks are, around the country are concerned that this, 
either A isn't going to happen or B will just get replaced with renewed uh, or a, a fresh facelift to a uh, permissive structure that basically lets them uh, do what they want. Will or Do you expect to see some sort of uh, curtailment of uh, presidential war powers? So I expect to see some legislation passed that will change the formal nature of the war, but I remain deeply skeptical that we will see the war end in anything like a meaningful way. The Article 2 thing um, is uh, deeply, deeply ominous for that, I think, because, like, the the plausible Article 2 defense is that if the U.S. was like, they've got their base there, it's, sure, it's under some agreement with Iraq. The, the long nature of how the U.S. gets there is uh, certainly a complicating Factor, But even so, if we have a formal agreement with the parliament, we keep a base here, we are training your troops, if we are shot at, we will shoot back in that moment, seems pretty reasonable for Article 2, but this is not that at all. This is, we got hit by rockets, and therefore we're going to plan an attack, a retaliatory attack in another country under a justification that is not even that doesn't run through Congress. It's basically saying that as commander of the armed forces... Um, the president is allowed to let the troops defend themselves unlimited in time, which is a huge break from um, what you would imagine a meaningful constraint on power is. If troops can defend themselves with strikes days or weeks out after attacks, then that just means they have the there's the impunity to keep fighting. Um, it's not really anything that binds it. Um, and so... What is especially weird about that um, and ominous about that is that the past, so the AUMF, right? This is the whole thing. Uh, the AUMF is functionally, um, I mean, it might, it shaped the U.S. for 19 years. It's unbelievably how open-ended the 60 words passed the week after 9-11 were. Um, the, the, the Barbara Lee's vote against, etc. That There's a huge bit, there's a great piece from uh, 2014 about that by a Gregory Johnson um, at, at BuzzFeed. It's incredible. And that piece now is uh, approaching seven years old um, about how this grants unlimited power. But the, the one caveat in the 2001 AMF is you have to be able to trace the group's lineage back to Al-Qaeda. Um, something wild about that is that ISIS can be both traced back to Al-Qaeda and also very formally broke with Al-Qaeda and declared war on Al-Qaeda itself. So even though the AUMF authorizes war under it, it also authorized war. Um, like, it was used to justify actions against these two groups who were already fighting each other. Um, it's messy. I imagine we will see that overturned. I think there's a good chance we see the 2001 AUMF overturned. I don't think it changes much that will happen. And my, my pessimism on this is that the main force driving this change... Um, is Tim Kaine, um, who is skeptical <laughs> of the messiness of war and the lack of rules around it more than he seems skeptical of the war itself. Yeah. Virginia senators are notably very deferential to the national security state, <laughs> the military. Um, like it's it's huge red flag that anybody out of Virginia is doing that because there's a you know, you're, a huge block of your voting base is military contractors. Like, that's just what it is. It's, I mean, I, a, it's yeah. huge. I have uh, the um, 
the F-35 pins that Lockheed Martin keeps in a bowl in their lobby in front of their in-house museum when they have press over. Like, this is not a subtle place. Um, And I've been, Mm -hmm. uh, like, it's, the defense industry is everywhere, but it's especially in Northern Virginia. Um, And Mm -hmm. so I think the the generous read is that Tim Kaine has listened to the constituents of Virginia, and he wants to make the war um, more explainable and clearer so that, like, your mid-level Raytheon or Lockheed people can explain to their children born after um, after the first withdrawal from Iraq that, no, 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 this is a real thing and not just, like, a legacy conflict we've been in forever. Um, there's a chance we get good out of it, right? The um, I have been... The counterpoint in all of this is the administration's moves on Yemen, which have been more than expected, but only barely more than expected, um, and are a sign of left pressure. And so that one is the U.S. has been supporting Saudi Arabia in a war against uh, an Iranian-backed but local to um, Yemen group. And also Al-Qaeda is in Yemen, and there's also bombing of that. There's a lot. deeply messy and then the u.s said we're gonna uh change how we sell weapons to saudi arabia and then qualified it with we're gonna sell them only defensive weapons which is an extremely meaningless term well it's it's interesting too in the context of this recent bombing as well which they justified as being a defensive uh maneuver (laughs) and then they're doing the same thing oh of course we're gonna we're gonna stop uh, arming the saudi arabia while they carry out this like genocidal war in yemen but we are gonna still uh you know give sell them defensive weapons and participate in that kind of stuff it's defensive, but we've seen throughout the history of the U.S. Uh, you know, in these military conflicts, that they'll they'll apply that word whenever they need to in order to do the things that they want to do, and it's more just a question of language. And right, and there are rules, right? Like, there's a whole what's sort of strange about all of this, and what is uh, sort of the I guess so far the trademark return or feature of the Biden uh, return to foreign policy is not that it's changing what the wars are, but it is bringing the wars more in line with rules, and if it needs to, then changing the rules so that they're on paper and the same. Um, one thing that really, really stands out as sort of the abrupt shift from uh, from Trump to Biden is not that the war, right, um, there's a pause, there's been a pause basically every time a new administration has come into power, which is, you know, now this is the fourth presidency of the forever war, but um, what the Trump administration did is it basically loosened the rules and reporting requirements and then kept the wars going. Um, drone strikes went up all over. Coverage went down. Um, if you're a particular commentator who is easily fooled by um, object permanence, you thought that Trump was uh, more peaceful. That was not the case. <laughs> but um, Donald the Dove. It didn't start any new wars, folks. We it's yeah. basically a uh, non-interventionist. Yeah. That's definitely why we have a garrison in um, in eastern Syria that exists to uh, basically secure the transfer of an oil pipeline um, as as close to literally as it can be put. Um, definitely, oh, that, that oil keeps us free, though. So right, well, it's that, important uh, to note. It's extremely important that we have the plunder. But basically, other than like the few very public uh, calls for violence and plunder the war went on and the rules faded away um not that the obama administration instituted a ton of rules but there was some like executive order voluntary reporting things that it set in motion in 2016 uh 
hedging against the possibility that what happened would happen. Um, those rules were all immediately shelved. The I believe it's the 2018 NDAA or maybe the 2019 one. Um, uh, passed and included some meaningful reporting requirements to Congress about airstrikes, which the uh, Trump administration then like contested the whole time. It's a whole mess of things. So what we have instead, right, the, the obscurity, the secrecy around doing more violence is gone. What has changed, though, is not the degree of violence, though some, sure, right? Like, I, it's hard to imagine um, the Trump administration publicly talking about calling off an airstrike unless it was like, in October before an election. Um, it's hard to imagine that being a salient point, but what instead we have is really an effort to make the rules line up with what's happening. Yeah. Well, and to, just to go back to the whole Trump didn't start any new wars uh, thing. I mean, like you pointed out with, with Iran, like it wasn't like that was a, it wasn't for lack of effort on his part. Like that, that whole, the assassination of Soleimani very easily could have spiraled into a, a fucking disastrous war. And it's really a testament to the restraint of the Iranian government that it didn't spiral and didn't become an even more serious conflict. Um, which is another reason that I don't think that that whole, um, you know, saying saying that about Trump as if he's some kind of like peaceful, uh, you know, non-interventionist. You know, I don't think that's really accurate. Right. Pompeo spent the last three months of the Trump administration basically doing everything he could to goad um, Iran into an attack. And like, I think it was the week before the Capitol riot said that Iran was directly linked to Al Qaeda, which would have then authorized the U.S. under um the 2001 AUMF, um, which is uh, wild and really like there's a non-zero chance that Trump losing his Twitter account after the attack is actually what stopped a possible shooting war with Iran. Um, the belligerence was certainly there, but also there was plenty of war to go around, right? Like Trump is a guy who actively pardoned war criminals. He was not one who yeah. was shy about endorsing the violence. Um and now we have violence that is uh, with in accordance with more rules. Um, it's possible there are changes. I shouldn't discredit the whole possibility. We are very early into the administration. Um, there are people who have done a lot of work in congressional and Senate uh, left foreign policy to the extent it exists who have inside lines and have been pushing this. Um, but what we can see right now is really that it is the the rules-aligned party is winning out over the uh, justice-aligned part of the party. Yeah. That was one thing you had mentioned. So the Obama administration had some sort of safeguards, not really substantial. But the one thing that came to mind was that he they likely would not have pardoned Eddie Gallagher. And this is a guy who uh, was uh, alleged to have committed war crimes, defiling a corpse, I think cutting someone's head off. Um, just really vile stuff, even people who – were in in the military or had served with him or had been in the military speaking out like this is disgusting like this is just like deliberately crass and cruel uh that's like one break and but that's like a, as weird as it is it's pretty minor compared to everything else um it's just like one isolated thing and person um but on on the uh, Iran thing there were even despite Trump's Twitter account being deleted, there were still attempts being made by Pompeo. Like he was meeting behind the scenes with, I think that I think he was seen in D.C. or in Georgetown at a restaurant with, the, I think the head of Mossad or somebody like near the end of the administration. We talked about and it at then, the time, yeah, yeah, and the uh, still we're still seeing like pretty aggressive overtures from Israel now, um, and to 
just this week, the Biden administration was very public about its uh, loyalty and unwavering support uh, to Israel and its interests. And we've seen, you know, now over the past week or two, a pretty serious, uh, aggressive tone toward Iran. And this, I think this ultimately jeopardizes attempts to renegotiate and rejoin uh, the Iran nuclear deal. Um, What's your read on that? I mean, do you still see any progress to be made uh, in terms of diplomacy with Iran? I, yeah, so it's wild to look back at the Iran nuclear deal is a fascinating policy because it was extremely coercive at the time. Um, It's sort of lost in the overall arc of the the long the long war and the long tensions but like the obama's first term saw stuxnet it saw multiple um assassinations of iranian nuclear scientists um that were uh reasonable to assume u.s intelligence services were not opposed to i think is the uh safest way to put it um if and if they were likely carried out elsewhere um there's a lot going on to like make it miserable and the um the mechanism of the iran deal was that iran was under sanctions that the u.s could manage to coordinate sanctions that had europe on board and also had russia and china like on board enough like to make it so that trading in dollars meant you weren't trading with Iran. And if you did any business in dollars, you have to have it very wholly separate from any business that worked in dollars. There's a great, um, I believe it's a A-Lab post about our uh, episode um, talking about sanctions and the whole dollar diplomacy and dollar cores in there. There's a lot um, going on just like in the financial sector. And also um, the net effect, right, is it was uh, it was a miserable time to be for Iran. and the But those sanctions were lessened and lifted to a large degree once there was this deal. And the deal was very ex- clearly on, there is a finite degree of, like a percentage of enrichment of nuclear material that can go on, which will make it useful for a power plant and not useful for a weapon. It's keeping breakout capacity away. Um, and breakout capacity is the the big term in nuclear war theorizing of how long does it take if the country wanted to to go from what it has on hand to having a workable nuclear warhead um and there's countries who are reasonably assumed to be within uh no more than a few months at any given time but have shown no interest or no effort into it um um don't tend to have the material on hand but if they could they wouldn't be hard for them to get it and so iran was doing this obviously for the reasons of its import having a nuclear weapon has been a pretty good reason uh way to secure a country um against foreign intervention right there's a reason that uh kim jong-un is in power and saddam hussein isn't um and we forget also too how libya gave away its nuclear program and did not work out yeah, super I was well say for Gaddafi, Gaddafi. Yeah. um so there's all yeah. this going on and so this is sort of all that goes into it. and we get the iran deal which is a remarkable work of diplomacy very carefully crafted that is also essentially the u.s agreeing to lessen existing pressure in return for iran agreeing to hold off on getting close to building a nuclear weapon, not giving up on having anything nuclear at all, not giving up wholly on enrichment, but keeping enrichment below a threshold. That's it. It has nothing to do with any of their other foreign policy, any of their other things. Um, 
And it's wild that that is, but that's as good as diplomacy got basically in 2016. Um, and what's remarkable and what we're seeing right now in the Biden administration, to, to bring this back to the point, is that there are people in the Biden administration, or especially in, in the Senate or in the Democratic camp, who thought that the deal Obama negotiated as written was too kind to Iran. Um, it, I struggle to comprehend that perspective, but I know it is there. Um, <laughs> I like if just reading anything about the impact of sanctions, if you want to um, revisit a a real horror story, the degree of sanctions on medical supplies um, at the start of the pandemic against Iran, right? You couldn't purchase them through companies that did business in dollars. Like there's a lot going on. It's horrific. Um, and it's a thing that hurts people who have absolutely no ability or say over their government. That's the nature of broad sanctions um, generally. And so it's wild that the Biden administration looks at this as like, okay, what if we try to do something crueler to get them back to where they were four years ago and also with less ability to get everyone else on board? Um, countries by and large don't like to have to separate out their transactions into those with dollars and those with other countries, um, with other currencies. It's uncomfortable. It's bad. It means you get weird things where suddenly the, like, you'll get, like, the Treasury Department mad at people who, like, messed up on misclassifying an aid. It's how you get, if you send um, a message on Venmo with Iran in the message, it takes days to get through because you have to get it cleared and approved by a person since it's an automated block so that Venmo yeah. doesn't get in trouble with uh, fucking treasury um, and commerce. Yeah, whenever yeah. I have to deal with my Iranian handlers, it's just a huge pain in the ass to have to I... go through that whole process. <laughs> Very frustrating. Yeah. You mentioned it earlier. Uh, it, it's I forgot how just insanely aggressive Stuxnet was. I read um, This is How They Tell Me the World Ends This Week. And it by Nicole Perlroth, and it was like a, a nice primer on uh, all the, like the zero day attacks and, and exploits in the underground zero day market. Uh, and ex while it's extremely apologetic to the U.S. like defense industry and national security state, like it does, <laughs> it was like really stark reminder of how aggressive Stuxnet was. And it's just it speaks to your point. Think about how coercive that deal was it's like why we, the fuck would they ever want to negotiate with us after that we built a we wrote code <laughs> onto a flash drive that made a centrifuge work so hard it broke itself like yeah that is a has been since it was public knowledge a ongoing topic of debate is, is Stuxnet the first cyber weapon? Cyber weapon's a weird garbage term. Cyber war is a messy thing to legally define. But, like, here is code we made that was used, whose only purpose was industrial sabotage of a national security industry for a country. Um, it's mm -hmm. wild. It is not, um, and, like, it's just, like, if, if this had, I mean, it's, it's, it's cliche to say, right, if some other country had done this and the U.S. had caught it, we would talk about it differently. It is This is something where the U.S. did it, and countries are like, yeah, this is probably a weapon. We're going to be weird about how we write these things because it's hard to say the U.S. launched the first cyber weapon. Um, 
It's a mess. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, just the way it was, it was structured. It was like that the, they had, I think, grouped, and I'm kind of probably sloven with the terminology, but they had basically grouped computers or terminals in, in, in clusters of like 144 or like 142, something like that. And there was like a line of code that specified it would only deploy if if it found like networks or clusters of computers in that amount, and like it was basically written so it would even get onto air-gapped machines, and it was just like. So so unbelievably deliberate and aggressive. I think even that kind of caginess toward doing it ultimately reflects like a, an apologia or or deference toward the U.S. military. Because and even in this in the in the coverage, it's the, uh, attacks in in Ukraine and um, power outages in Ukraine uh, purportedly done by uh, Russian hackers were aggressive. And could this be the first war crime? But this. Because the target was Iran, it was it was noble. It was good. It was to prevent them from getting a nuclear bomb. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I also too, I just to go back to the Iran deal as well too, because you know, so following the Obama administration and their their foreign policy, which was you know really horrific in many ways, the expanding the the drone warfare the way they did uh, all over the world, the regime change campaigns in Libya. The you know bombing of Syria and all these different places, uh, it was very frustrating, especially for people that were coming out of the Iraq War and, and supported Obama and and supported the Democratic Party because they kind of positioned themselves as being these kinds of anti-war, uh, the anti-war party, uh, in order to win that election. Um, and then when you saw them work towards the Iran deal and work towards uh, normalizing relations with Iran and Cuba as well, it was an example of like, oh, this is actually like a, a good example of like what a more liberal or more progressive foreign policy could maybe look like. Um, so that's why it was very discouraging when Donald Trump was then elected and immediately just tore up that deal uh, with Iran and just re reinstituted those sanctions, um, you know, which they which they negotiated in good faith to get out from under the thumb of those sanctions. Um, and that was the th one of the things when Joe Biden was was running against Trump that was a, a hopeful possibility that you can maybe get back into that Iran deal and maybe ease the tensions with, with Iran and, and restore some normalcy to that relationship. And that's why it's been a little bit frustrating, even though I don't think that possibility is completely receded. It's been frustrating because, uh, uh, you know, immediately as soon as Biden takes power, he's bombing uh, Iran-backed militias, and he's kind of making these demands to, like, you've got to, if you want to get out in front of the sanctions, you've got to, you know, meet these terms that I'm laying out there. But it's like, well, what fucking, what possible reason would they have to negotiate with the United States. So like, what leverage do they have to be telling Iran what to do when they were the ones that abided by the deal and America was the one that just like arbitrarily uh, broke the deal? And it's just like, what possible reason would any would Iran or any other country have to believe the United States has good intentions when it makes these kinds of negotiations now when you know that it's your one election cycle away from some lunatic coming in and just completely arbitrarily ripping up the deal that you just made? Um, it hasn't been... It's, you don't have a great negotiating position to be making demands of these of these nations to to get to the uh, bargaining table and absolutely and that's one of the things that's really i think um as the sd sort of like looking forward like with how the um i think uh aumf uh, repeal and replace is uh deeply underwhelming as a proposal but what we have broadly like congress as written in the constitution should be more involved in foreign policy if the U.S. is to be a democracy. It needs to have its uh, most most democratic body, which is still, you know, uh, drastically limited, but still be actively involved in this process and in constraining and in determining how wars are fought. Um, 
and if they are fought, even more than how they are fought. And the national security sort of enterprise as built up post-World War II and especially uh, post-2001 is extremely insulated from democratic pressure and not like uh, the party, but like the actual like how people vote pressure. Um, there's not really a lot of ways in there. The NSC isn't confirmed. Um, there's many powers that are defaulted to the executive. There's whole layers of secrecy and inevitability and continuity. Um, and what the Trump administration should have been, and maybe is for some people, like how Biden ran in the summer of 2020 versus like what the uh, candidates were all debating in the fall of 2019 is fairly different. But there was some possibility that like, oh, the idea that the executive is allowed to launch and sustain wars forever is a nightmare um, and should be changed. Um, but to do that, you have to call into question how Obama actually waged his wars and what he did when he was in power and why he didn't use his power to end them. And some of it is the national security state is uh, a self-perpetuating machine. Um, but the other part that's really weird and sort of causing a break and the reason you see like Tim Kaine taking the lead on this is that Trump also broke with like what had been sort of a close to bipartisan orthodoxy on these things and not that he broke in any pacifistic way he just acted irregularly he was willing to like uh threaten the f-35 program he was willing um even for like extort it more or less as a as a deal more than he was willing to actually change things but there were weird quirks in there and weird deviations and it means that you can't have sustained foreign policy on scale um one thing that i sort of lost in all this is that the exact timing of like the last big remaining arms control treaty between the U.S. and Russia, like the one that limits nuclear arsenals, was, like, I believe it expired in January after the inauguration or was up for renewal. And so the Biden administration got it in under the clock to renew it. But every other sort of existing arms control deal around which like the modern past 30 years, 40 years had been built was discarded as soon as it was. And it makes it really hard to have diplomacy as a thing <laughs> i think that's kind of the the alarming thing about this moment because as we've pointed out it's not like donald trump was some non-interventionist or some kind of peacenik or anything like that but he did show a kind of willingness to push back against the uh, national security establishment a little bit and also there was just kind of an ineptitude in the fact that he was he was staffing his administration with a bunch of like uh weird cold war weirdos and people that are kind of like uh you know don't have the same amount of credibility uh and were kind of like not maybe as competent and that was kind of the alarming thing about uh, biden is the fact that you know america's back i think that was the thing i was concerned about was that biden was going to get in there and he's going to have this competent foreign policy team and uh that's not something that anyone should be celebrating you know because because it just it, it opens them up to then like be able to do a lot of the things that maybe Donald Trump's administration wanted to do but uh, failed to do, and and Biden is now with his competent foreign policy team is going to be able to you know erase some of those mistakes. It feels like. And yeah, so one of the things on that right is that like there's there's been fights within the nationalist community community as long as we've had them right like. Uh, LeMay has views uh, no less outlandish than Flynn. Um, LeMay being the general who uh, popularized firebombing and then launched the Air Force. Great, great, wonderful figure. Definitely not a war criminal. Um, absolutely a war criminal. But he had wild outlandish views, but they were firmly in like the mainstream. 
by and large, until he was like suddenly out of them and got got quietly shoved away. Flynn, very similar, has wild views about what the wars he fought were about. He is very much on the sense that the point was this uh, crusading notion of Western civilization against a vile enemy, um, a nightmare person. Um, and so what happened when like, Trump is that he was able to elevate all these people who had existed within national security and then had views that had sort of kept them marginalized or under wraps and then pull them to the front. And that means that you ha- And so the answer really is like one answer, right? We're seeing with the Biden administration is to bring in people who are far more in line with a sort of Washington consensus view of what foreign policy is and like the long history of the, the post-war state and national security. Um, but another th- way to prevent Flynn's from happening again is to reduce the power of these people and to make it somewhat more accountable and transparent so that you can catch the fact that, uh, oh, this guy is also on the direct payroll of like fringe foreign groups and also is trying to like negotiate the release of political prisoners or not even the, no, it wasn't the release, it was like an execution. Uh, there was so much that happened in Flynn's very few weeks in office. Anyway, like the big thing is that there's a there's a mess in national security and the there's a few the ways to sort of make it um, responsive to to people are you have to dismantle a lot of ways. Guy before you have to accept um, reducing the power of people who have made careers managing defense contracts and also managing um, like running the actual agencies. And you have to find a way to break that scale that back and bring in um any transparency and accountability at all, or else you have sort of a reserve pool of nightmare people. And then also a sort of default norm of, oh yeah, it makes sense to do a defensive attack on Syria for a rocket attack in Iraq. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Underlying all this, the shift to drone warfare, um, liberals basically being deferential to the Biden administration and uh, taking on this assumption that things are going to be better because juxtaposed to Trump, I mean, it'll be slightly better. Uh, but there's still a, a a sense of jingoism in our foreign policy. There's still the dehumanization of non, uh, uh, non-violent and non-enemy combatants, um, just, just basically civilians abroad. Um, could you speak to kind of the underlying risks uh, associated with the proliferation of d- drone warfare and how it just basically re- removes any uh, domestic losses from the equation, which leads to people being more uh, willing uh, to s- see this continue, or or at least completely unaware because they're not seeing any any uh, cl- collateral damage at home. Sure, sure. So I should yes yeah, start by uh, technically I'm a uh, military technology journalist by trade, so a lot of my beat has been about what <laughs> happens. With drones, I think the first thing I ever ever wrote um, back in like 2013 for PopSci was about the what was the drone memo. But the drone memo was a set of rules that authorized um, that outlined the circumstances by which the United States would be free to do um, airstrikes against targets. And it was interesting because it also it, it mentioned drones by name, but it also mentioned uh, cruise missiles and um, 
crewed aircraft. Um, and we've seen strikes under this carried out by cruise missiles and by um, there was a whole era of a lot of uh, AC-130s, which are like the big um, cargo planes. You might recognize them from some Vietnam films, um, but there's a version of it that has just a ton of guns sticking out the side. And one of the ways the U.S. does this is it has the plane with all the cargo plane with all the guns sticking out the side fly in a circle around the target while all the guns shoot down. Um, very, very clean, very uh, sterile. Um, but drones are the signature tool of this, and there are a couple reasons technologically that it matters most. Um, and what the main one is, um, a, a big part of it is certainly that there aren't people on board, right? There's no human pilot in there. There are often people in theater. Um, one of the things that was really fascinating is that when the U.S. was flying a ton of drones out of Afghanistan, and, and to some degree still, um, there was a there were remote pilots in Afghanistan whose job was sitting in like a like a shipping crate with some computers set up um, and like a joysticks and whatnot and they would take the drones off and they would land the drones and then once the drone was airborne they would hand over control to uh, through satellite links to pilots outside of Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, where they would do the long flight. And these drones um, can fly for uh, for so long that you shift pilots mid-flight. Um, the Global Hawk can do 24 hours. I believe the Reaper does 20. The Predator is similarly long. Um, and so there's something weird and sterile and distant about having the people doing the drone strikes, not just, not even in the country where they're being launched or near the country, but they're all the way in different time zones. They're at weird hours. They're, um, they could, on their weekends, go uh, get shit-faced and gamble everything away on the strip. It's wild. Um, a very weird juxtaposition of that. And there's something to it. And it means also, and the other thing right, that comes with drone warfare is it means if the drone is shot down, you don't have to have a report about humans, about Americans dying in that action. Um, and drones are, by and large, um, they're a lot easier to shoot down than other aircraft. They don't really have a good situational awareness with a pilot in the cockpit. There's like one camera looking forward to the ball camera underneath that swivels around. Um, they can be shot by uh, missiles fairly easily. Um, and they're expendable in that sense. Um, but the really thing, the other thing they let you do, even more than not risking lives, is... They let you do airstrikes different. Um, they let you have, they let you watch for a long time and then decide when to shoot. With cruise missiles, which had a lot of the same debates beforehand, you basically have to know when and where a target is going to be and then you launch them. Still, the thing goes, there's no human um, who gets lost when a cruise, there's no American piloting a cruise missile who dies when it get, blows up. Um, there's definitely people on the other end of that. That's how they work. Um, but with the drone, you can watch over and over and over again. You can surveil compounds or villages for hours or days or weeks until you have the right thing line up. Um, there's a whole process. The Obama administration had something called the disposition matrix. We know... Not ominous sounding at all. <laughs> no, not ominous. There's nothing. No, there's absolutely nothing ominous about the... Uh, panopticon in the hands of the philosopher king using a secret <laughs> metric charted up by lawyers in the white house whose job is to say the white house can do this um yeah. what well, you don't trust the disposition matrix come on i mean that's <laughs> I... 
Right. And so there's a whole thing. And so what it means, right, is that you get to do a different kind of violence. And, like, it's one of the things that's weird where you can say that the um, that the Biden can point to, oh, we did this airstrike, but we didn't do this second airstrike because we identified the people as civilians that we didn't want to risk. There well, was who knows a, if that's even true, too, or if that's just the scenographers in the U.S. Yeah. media just being like, oh, I know, it wasn't that bad. Everyone's mad about the, this uh, drone strike, but don't worry. It was very benevolent and very kind that, that actually the way they <laughs> yeah. And we called this out. one off, right? There was a whole stretch in 2013 and 2014. Um, and I promise you, if you Google drone strike and 30 enemy combatants, you will find several years of coverage because the Pentagon at one point decided... The Pentagon and the CIA, they both have authorization to do drone strikes. It's a whole mess. But they decided that if you said 30 combatants, that was a reasonable approximation and no one would dig further. If you said 50, that's news. If you say 30, that's a drone strike. Yeah. Well, and there was the whole the whole incredibly fucked up way that they took any like any military aged male, whatever that means, uh, and just who happened to be in the vicinity of these drone strikes and then retroactively declared them like enemy combatants uh, in order to justify this and in order to drive down the numbers of, of uh, innocent uh, civilians and civilian casualties that these drone strikes led to. Very, very fucking grim stuff. And it's hard, too, because one of the things, right, there's um, there's some great outfits out there I'm going to shout out. There's uh, Air Wars, and then there's the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, and they do some really good tracking of drone strikes when they can and what they can do in um, other related strikes. Um, and it's hard because you have to have reliable reporting in a war zone by people who are willing to talk to the reporter who will not fear reprisal from any of the active uh, militias on the ground who have a vested interest in not being found out or not having their strength revealed and also are like don't want people talking to the U.S. generally. So it's hard to get countervailing numbers, though they do exist in places. Um, And it's messy. There was an airstrike um, in Somalia last year. There's been several. Somalia saw way more airstrikes um, than got worthy media coverage. Um, and this was one which was like a small bus, right? Like a, like basically a van as a bus got hit by a drone. And everyone uh, has been interviewed claimed that there has been, there have been relatives of people who died in that strike are like very clear they were on their way to work. This had no connection to any of the group that was targeted. Um, and the U.S. claims it, AFRICOM and the U.S. broadly claims it as like, no, 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 this was a reliable strike and we did the right thing. Um, and it's messy and it's not a thing, like the way you solve this problem is you don't do airstrikes. The way you solve this problem is you scale back where the U.S.'s military is, how it sees its interest and what it does. Uh, the Pentagon is a machine that, is very good at putting weapons on targets and isn't really accountable for justifying that. And that's a part of the intelligence community. There's a whole lot going on in there. But if you're genuinely interested, you don't say, oh, we carefully looked at the footage, decided there were civilians, and we called off the strike. You just stop flying those missions. Um, What we have instead, um, if I could pivot for a second, is we have... Uh, something like the S.W.O.R.D. missile, which was a technology designed under, started under the Obama administration that is um, the main weapon used by drones is a Hellfire missile. It's designed, it's an anti-tank weapon, but uh, is a large enough blast to kill about 30 people in a pop or so. Um, The S.W.O.R.D. missile instead 
is uh, kinetic in not just the euphemism force, but the the, the euphemism way. Uh, but it's actually a kinetic force. It is launched, it is targeted, and when it gets close, blades slide out of it and it spirals. Um, there are more visceral descriptions. You can seek them out. I am not going to go into them there. It's messy. It is designed and was specifically pitched and marketed as it hits the driver of a car while leaving the passenger alive, which... Maybe. Um, But more realistically, it hits one car and doesn't turn the car into shrapnel so the other cars around it don't blow up. Which is something. Like, is it objectively better than a Hellfire? Yes! But is it good that it exists at all? It's solving a problem where the answer is you don't do these airstrikes. The problem isn't you do the airstrikes with a smaller blast radius. Yeah. This bomb is actually made of knives, so it's better to do it like this. So don't worry, everybody. Yeah, you said you don't like guns. Yeah. So here you go. <laughs> Wonderful. Here you go, liberals. Wonderful. On the re- on the review thing, uh, well, actually, to step take a step back, the language that we're seeing parroted is alarming. Some, like we would never see this kind of nuance or um, deference if this was Trump doing it, and. You know, I think we should have that same tar- type of aggression and pushback. You saw people who were furious that Trump uh, had 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 bombed Syria during his administration, saying he couldn't do it unilaterally, and people were furious. Silent this week, or oh, I'm very troubled, as we saw from I think Adam Schiff and some of the reporting. So they're reporting on the, the woman and children allegedly in the second site. Obviously, we don't know how true that is. Um, but I think what most concerning is it was framed in this. Oh, what a humanitarian! It, look, what a what a great guy! This is so great. He's so careful and cautious with his drone strikes that killed twenty people. And then the the story that came out about the review, like you said, Kelsey, about this the Pentagon and CIA can can launch drone strikes as well, and it's very messy. Well, now uh, there's allegedly a a review, an internal review being conducted uh, by the uh, the Biden administration whether or not that amounts to anything remains to be seen and have heard some there's some red flags around the review itself but these narratives are being parroted by the media and one very funny thing that I think uh, <clears throat> stands out about the woman and children thing is it came out I think in the Times first either the Times or the Wall Street Journal first uh, the Wall Street Journal at like nine in the morning and everyone was like oh that's so great. NBC gets told the same thing later that night and they break it as if it's new. And it's just the willingness that the media has when reporting on the U.S. military and the president, especially when it comes to this kind of stuff. It's just like it's smooth sailing. You just tell them something and they'll run it. And they just took it and the same thing, breaking or, or new at 9 p.m., like 12 hours, 12 or 14 hours later, the same exact story. And I'm reminded of in, in, in Matt Taibbi's Hate Inc., talks about, I can't remember who it was, but there were reports over like two or three years of the U.S. military killing the same person in different countries. And I, I, I the name escapes me, I can't remember, but it was just like he documented all these different times journalists just basically acted like stenographers at the behest of the military. And they just, whatever they told him, they ran it. And that it, it ended up, they were running the, the killing of the same general over and over again in different countries for like three years. Yeah, I mean, it's, right, it's maddening. And so the fundamental, like, way national security 
works the way we have this process is it's designed on the idea that there are facts that cannot and should not be known by the by people because if they if it's public knowledge it will endanger the lives of uh usually almost exclusively these days it's the lives of of service people if you want a real garbage pentagon word they'll say the warfighter um never use that word it's trash but that's what they'll say um <laughs> but they'll say right like it'll endanger the lives of people in uniform that's our polite euphemism here um or catch-all um and they won't go into, like, what are the other consequences, whether here or what happens or what kind of information are we being concealed. And it's, I've worked on this beat. It's hard. Access is tricky. I understand it on that. But there's reason to include basic skepticism in all of this. There is, so the New York Times has a piece um, that uh, broke on the 3rd, um, which is the uh, Biden secretly limits counterterrorism drone strikes away from war zones, which itself is a wild ride because if you're doing drone strikes, how is that not war? But what they mean really is like a dec- like what they mean is if there's a chance of two groups of people shooting at each other, one of them is Americans, then that's more likely a war zone. If it's not a war zone, that means we just have drones there and there are other people on the ground. Um, that's my best read on what that means. But there's you've there's Stuff in here. What is the thing I'm looking for? Um, among the trade-offs under discussion, I'm quoting here, uh, among the trade-offs under discussion, the official said, is that intelligence-gathering resources are finite. For example, keeping surveillance drones over a potential strike zone for a longer period to watch who comes and goes means rendering them less available for other operations. End quote. Sure. That's a technically true thing. There are trade-offs in how you use a resource. None of that questions what is being done here or the assumption that the people being watched are valid and lawful targets at war. Um, that's wild. This quotes, um, they say Avril Haines, um, who is uh, the, the, who uh, they say her as, who oversaw development of Mr. Obama's drone strike playbook and is now Biden's director of national intelligence. Avril Haines also did not reprimand CIA agents who hacked into the computers the Senate used to <laughs> investigate the, tor- the CIA torture. <laughs> like, yeah. this is someone who may be a party stalwart, but is uh, profoundly not a source to trust or to attribute good faith to. That is, like, yeah. the, the brief window when the Senate was investigating the CIA for torture and the Obama administration was fine with the CIA blocking it is a grim, grim thing that should hang over all of this. It makes it hard to get transparency under Trump times because they don't want to have to face transparency under non-Trump times. Yeah, that's absolutely chilling there that we just kind of gloss over um, <laughs> because... You know, I guess because it was Obama's <laughs> agencies doing it, but just generally horrifying. Uh, but also, I think, again, speaks to that. We saw, again, that same deference this week when they were talking, uh, when CNN reported that the FBI, in looking at these uh, cell phone records and cell phone data that they had collected the day of uh, the, the, you know, the attack on the Capitol. Um, oh, well, we also found incidental contact. We found contact between these people and members of Congress. And it's like, wait a minute, 
you're not supposed to have members of Congress's cell phone data. That's like the speech and debate clause. And there's like a, there's a buffer. There should be a buffer there. And all these people like the, 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 the pro FBI cranks are like, the FBI is saying that they will not look at any of, they have an exclusion list. And it's like, these are the same agencies. Like you just said, hacked into their computers to get what they wanted to find out what they were doing. It's just like, they have no, no regard for the law at all whatsoever like the, your privacy is a fucking joke to them um so the people are just unilaterally absorb, absorbing this stuff because their perceived enemy is is the recipient uh is really chilling because it's just absolutely gonna get turned back on you i it's wild it's absolutely wild and one of the things that's really so i don't want to be completely dismissive of the possibility that good a reform comes out of this Congress or this Senate figuring out some legislation for important policy. There exists the possibility it is good. What is the most dangerous outcome, I think, isn't even that there's no reform. Because if there's no reform, the problems persist and eventually maybe there it becomes glaring enough. Um, though, who knows? We're, at, we're again in year 19 of this war. Um, the real danger is that we get the law written in such a way that it makes this all okay, rather than realizing this is flagrantly against international law, it's against the Constitution, it is against uh, what people voted Congress in to do, it's against popular opinion. Um, and instead, like, there are many reasons to scale back, to withdraw these things. It's very, that militia hit in Syria would have no means of hurting Americans if there was not an American military presence in Iraq they would not be there. Like, it's not like a, not like that the U.S. should with disentangle things. That's a process that should be figured out. We don't need to fully withdraw everything immediately. But it's very clear what the cause and effect is and what the danger is. The fact that we build bases and feel the right to preemptively defend those with airstrikes does not justify, um, does not mean we need clearer rules to say it's okay. It means we need to rethink where the U.S. military is and who is being served at all by any of this. Um, I have no idea if Gen Z feels any political salience about the wars authorized for 9-11, the wars that have been going on longer than they have been conscious, um, by and large. Um, it's wild that this is a debate, but what we're getting is what we might get is we might get rules that align, that legalize what is already happening, that update it, that modernize it, we repeal and replace with basically a 2021 AUMF that says it's actually okay that this is all good. Um, we have rules here, there's clear, and there could be steps for transparency. There's a somewhere in between is what we'll probably get. We'll get maybe some nods toward transparency. We might get something that like if we move things out of the CIA to the Pentagon, it would at least acknowledge what is happening with drone strikes. The CIA should, by and large, not be authorizing assassinations. Um, at a bare minimum, it's wild yeah. to say this, but that is a bare minimum requirement for a democracy. Yeah. It's just for so many reasons, many historical just absolutely should not have that capability. <sighs> well, uh, we should probably wrap it up, uh, Kelsey. <laughs> oh. Um, it was great to have you on the show though to talk about all this stuff. Pretty grim, got a little bit (laughs) got there, but it was it was great to get your perspective on all this stuff. Do you want to just let everyone know where they can find your work and your Substack and Twitter and all the stuff you want to plug? 
Yeah, you could find me um, on Substack at AthertonKD.substack. You can find me on Twitter at AthertonKD. You can find my writing um, all over the place, most commonly at Breaking Defense um, and also at Popular Science again now. Um, and uh, yeah, if it's not on there, you can also find me on Twitter again, where you will find uh, too many things from me. But yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. Please remember to subscribe over at theinsurgents.substack.com. Find the podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. And please remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's very helpful and we appreciate it a lot. But please, again, don't mention Ken Klippenstein in the review. He is banned from the show. It's a lifetime ban. So please do not mention him in the review. And we'll be back later this week with more of the content that you know and love. Goodbye.